invite you now to take out your Bibles and turn to Philippians chapter 1. Philippians 1, verses 1 through 11. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi, with the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. It is right for me to feel this way about you all, because I hold you in my heart, for you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. A sense the reading of God's word. Please be seated. Good morning. Let's start in prayer. Father in heaven, thank you for your many blessings to us. Thank you for your blood-bought church. Thank you that it is made up of sinners who have been made into saints by the sanctifying work of Jesus Christ, and who are by the indwelling of your spirit and similarity of mind together. For that reason, we may gather here today, open your word, and be equipped by the preaching and teaching of it regardless of the skill level of the preacher himself. I take much solace in the truth that your gospel goes forth despite skill. I pray that the words I speak today would honor you, that your spirit would work today in our hearts, that you would open our eyes to see, our ears to hear, our hearts to know, and our minds to understand your ways more and more. May your word and spirit invigorate your people, and may many more hear your voice and follow you. I pray these things in the name that is above all names, the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. So as we turn to Philippians 1, 1 through 11, we will not find a meaty passage on deep doctrinal issues like salvation or justification directly, but rather we will witness the implication of proper application of sound doctrine to the Christian life. Paul will cover topics in these first 11 verses of Philippians, such as servanthood and sainthood, ecclesiastical hierarchy, gospel, thankfulness and prayer, and finally true and proper love. If these topics sound a little bit scattered to you, you would be correct. But so is the implication at times of verse-by-verse expositional preaching of the text. Even so, this is a letter of Paul, a messenger of Christ, an apostle to the Philippians with a purpose. And I think it fits together much more than we may realize and I exhort you to work through these particulars with me today, as Paul has much to say to his audience, 
and to us as well. We must remember Paul's words to Timothy in 2 Timothy 3, 16 to 17, where he tells him that all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Therefore, the duty of the gathering today is to teach, to reproof, to correct, and to train in righteousness, so that the saints may be complete and equipped for every good work. Let us turn to our text in Philippians 1, 1 through 11. Verse 1 begins by saying, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, which is to say that they are humble messengers, not taking grandeur position over the Philippians, but obeying the master's call that can be recalled in Mark 10, 42 to 45, which says, And Jesus called them to him and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be a slave to all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve." and to give his life as a ransom for many. So here to the Philippians, Paul begins with a humble spirit and a servant-like attitude and does not lord his position as apostle over the people of God. There are times, though, where Paul will utilize the title of apostle, especially when there is grave concern and necessity to show his authority as a messenger of Jesus Christ as an apostle. This was the case in regards to the Galatian church's descent from the true gospel into a false belief that added works as a means of meriting a good standing with God could happen. But there is a time for everything, and I believe an example of this can be visualized in our own pastors' positions of authority in our church. Our pastors do not every day come to the sheepfold with a rod of iron to say to us, we are your rulers, obey us, but rather, they say something more like, we are your brothers in Christ. Let us follow Jesus together. Yet when issues arise, when false teaching begins to take form in our churches, they will say, we are your elders. And this thing that you are doing or believing is not of the Lord. They do not lord their authority over us, but rather they act as servants to the body of Christ, and yet when a false gospel comes in and the wolves set themselves up against the church, our pastor's lordship takes preeminence. And they will blot out that false teaching because it is an enemy to the souls of their sheep. It is their God-given duty to distinguish between sheep and goats and wolves in the disguise of sheep clothing. And I would suggest that our pastors ought to be the most discerning and the most dangerous men in the room prepared to slay the enemy at the gates before they can come into the kingdom and poison its people, ready to lay their lives down for the sheep on behalf of their king. Historically, this attitude of self-sacrifice was a sign of a good shepherd. And we see this of God in Psalm 23, 1 through 4. If you guys would like to turn there with me, that's Psalm 23, 1 to 4. Psalm 23, 1-4 says, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. 
He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for my name's sake, for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. A lot can be said about these four verses, but I would like to emphasize the latter half of verse four. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. The shepherd carried a rod and a staff. A staff was a long stick in which the shepherd could walk with, but it also had a hooked portion on its end. The hook was used to lead a sheep in the way he should go and to pluck them out of danger. And in the case of Psalm 23, to lead them beside still waters. And therefore, evidently, this would be away from tumultuous waters. It would be the equivalent to your pastor putting his arm around your shoulder and saying, brother, perhaps you ought to go this way instead of that way. Which in hindsight, you may perhaps perceive that your chosen path would have led to a cliff edge. The rod, on the other hand, was a shorter and stiffer stick with a blended, blunted round end. The rod was, a, was designed for predators and it was a primarily used as a weapon. David probably refers to the use of this rod when he speaks to Saul in 1 Samuel 17, 34 to 35, which reads, but David said to Saul, your servant used to keep sheep for his father. And when there came a lion or a bear and took a lamb from the flock, I went after him and struck him and delivered it out of his mouth. And if he rose against me, I caught him by the beard and I struck him and I killed him. The rod was a fierce deterrent to ravenous beasts and it killed even large predators such as lions and bears. So what does David mean to say in Psalm 23 when he says that your rod and your staff, they comfort me, except to say that my shepherd comforts me both in my wanderings when he must pull me back out of danger and in my troubles when he must intervene and grab the beast by the beard and crush his skull. And therefore, Paul is both a servant and an apostle, and our pastors are both shepherds and warriors of the faith. As the preacher says in Ecclesiastes, for everything there is a season and a time for every matter under heaven, there is a time to talk, but there is also a time to fight. Yet it is in servanthood that Paul moves forward now and, for, and finishes verse one by saying, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons. Do you notice how Paul does not focus on the preeminence of the overseers and the deacons of the church at Philippi in his introduction? But rather he introduces his letter to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi. When God's word came to the Philippians through Paul, it was clearly received by all the saints. That is, it was received by all true believers in Philippi. And not through a mediator as it is in most every other religion of the world and throughout even our Old Testament. In Christ, all the saints have been given the birthright of a direct relationship with Jesus. We may all turn to his relief and we may all glean wisdom from our Father's mind. Yet he has seen fit to install shepherds to watch over his sheep, his sheep, his church. And who are these shepherds except for our older brothers in the faith? 
And by older, I do not necessarily mean in age, for the institution of God's holy family is not of this world, nor does it age comparatively, but rather the older brother of a church is generally he who grows in Christ, and the oldest among us, therefore, are those who have grown much in Christ. And I would add that although many of us will be old in Christ, that only some are called to the office of elder or overseer. Take heart, brothers, the wisdom of Christ may be gained whenever a man chooses to devote his time to God things and not to man things. Yet wisdom does not grow in solitude, but rather it grows while being pruned by Christ through his saints and through the God-given authority structure of Christ's church. Therefore, Paul sent his letter to the saints in Philippi under the authority of the elders and deacons, who from then on will teach these words of God that has come to the, through the Apostle Paul and put them into regular practice in the churches. Our pastors will not lord it over us, but rather they will lead us among fruitful paths of righteousness and sound doctrine, away from harm as any good shepherd would, and towards that celestial city which we all belong in Christ, if we are in Christ. Saint, redeemed believer, obey your pastors as he obeys Christ his master. Pray for him, pray for him, for he also is but a man saved by Jesus Christ. He needed a savior as much as he preaches that you need a savior. He is but a man, yet he is a man blessed by God for this particular role in this institution, the church. Paul moves on from his introduction into his salutation for the church at Philippi by stating in verse 2, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. The ble this blessing is common use for the Apostle Paul, who uses it in every letter that we have from him in our scriptures. It was apparently a mixture of Greek and Hebrew blessing, grace or favor uh, being of the Greek, and peace of the Hebrew. But fundamentally, the meaning of this salutation is that of the gospel message of unmerited grace through Jesus Christ's death and resurrection, and that peace gained through the life of sacrifice, removing that barrier that once prevented us from having communion with God. Peace in this case can refer to a cessation of war, a creation of harmony, security, safety, prosperity, felicity, because peace and harmony make and keep things safe and prosperous. When Jesus Christ gave himself as a sacrifice on our behalf, he created peace between us as sinners and the kingdom of God. And we live at peace with the kingdom of God. We reap the benefits of that alliance. And more than just being granted access to the political benefits of that peace, the promises given to our forefathers, we are also bought by the blood of Christ and adopted into the family line of God. We as sanctified sinners have now married into the kingdom of God. We as the church are the bride and Christ the bridegroom. And we as sinners have been united into one unbreakable bond with God. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. From Paul's salutation and great gospel uh, declaration, we continue in verses 3 to 5, where Paul says, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy, 
because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you. Paul's first words here direct us to the loving fatherly affection of the apostle who remembers or brings to recollection the blessings of his relationship with the Philippians and to which memories he now thanks God as the giver and sustainer of Paul's work. As a husband and father, I've experienced this often when I'm away at work or also in hard times, I bring to remembrance the blessing that is my family and how as Paul continues in verse four, this drives me to make prayer with joy and in verse five to remember that partnership that I have with my wife and kids as I share the gospel starting from that first day until now. As we lean, or sorry, as we learn in a few more verses, Paul himself is in a tough situation in which he has been imprisoned in Rome awaiting trial from Caesar. Paul had gone to Jerusalem where he was foretold to uh, be placed in bonds by the Jews and delivered to the Gentiles. Acts 21, 10 through 11 says, while we were staying for many days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea and coming to us, he took Paul's belt and bound his own feet and hands and said, thus says the Holy Spirit. This is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. Paul responds in verse 12 and 13. It says, when we heard of this, we and the people there urged Paul not to go to Jerusalem. But Paul answered, what are you doing? Weeping and breaking my heart. For I am ready not only to be in prison, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. Then after the occurrence, after, after the occurrence of these foretold events near Jerusalem, Paul hears from God about his circumstances. Acts 23.11 says, The following night the Lord stood by him and said, Take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. Paul therefore appeals to Caesar during his trial and is taken into custody by the Gentiles and brought to Rome where he would stay locked away for two years awaiting his appeal before Caesar. Paul was not unfamiliar in regards to hardships and discomforts, and within those times he likely append Ephesians, Philemon, Colossians, and Philippians. It is within these hardships that Paul makes his work, writes his letters, and glorifies Christ. So to sum up verses 3 through 5, what do we learn from Paul's words? First, in verse 3, we learn that it is in hardship that remembrance of mercies and graces becomes sweet as honey in our mouths, and thankfulness to God becomes our regular mode of operation. Second, in verse 4, we learn that it is in hardships that prayer should come with joy because God has made us worthy to suffer for the name of Christ. And thirdly, in verse 5, we learn that it is in hardships that we may take joy in the partnerships that we have uh, in our gospel endeavors as we see the fruits of our labors. As Christians, we should not be confused when we have trials of many kinds. We need not be imprisoned in order to struggle with doubts and faithlessness either. Sometimes the mundane day-to-day -day life can be hardest not to complain about, but we learn from Paul that we ought to remember the goodness of God. 
and have prayers of joyfulness and remember God's work in our lives. Complaining otherwise about our life is faithlessness because it is disbelieving in God's plans for our lives. And though hard, sometimes I suggest that it is needless to stress about. Just to listen to what Paul has to say. He says, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you. Why? Because of the partnership in the gospel from the day, first days until now. In other words, we are all in this together as partners in the gospel. And it is the memory of that truth and the encouragement from the gathered church of Christ that helps us move forward even when we are imprisoned, even when we are struggling with faithlessness, even when we are struggling with anxiety or depression. We may come back to that which God has given us partnership in and find support in our local church. You are not alone. You are not alone, Christian. You are surrounded by those who are fleeing from the city of destruction and are heading to that same eternal destination, the celestial city to which we are all called if we are in Christ. And therefore, you ought to take comfort and seek counsel with those who may very well feel the same way that you do on that path. The church is a necessary institution given by God in his mercy, led by godly shepherds who will take care of your souls and a community that will help bear your burdens together. Paul works his message forward, as we see in verse 6, where he says, And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at that day of Jesus Christ. Paul previously had stated that I thank my God in all my remembrance of you because of your partnership in the gospel from the first days until now. So naturally, he works his way from that point and states what ought to come after. Namely, he works off of the Philippians' partnership in the gospel since those first days, verse 5, and widens and deepens that statement by sharing an important fact, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. We can look back to verse 2 and see who it is who began that good work. Verse 2 says, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So who began the good work? God the Father, through the grace and mercy of the Lord Jesus Christ's sacrifice on our behalf, to which he has now begotten peace between two warring nations. War has now ceased between the kingdom of God and the now redeemed saints. The choirs of angels sing in the heavens. By the way, do you know what saint means? Saints in the plural is a, just means holy. Saint in the singular is simply a way of saying a holy one. Did you notice that Paul's intro to the Philippians states, to all the saints, or to all the holy ones in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi? God began a good work in the Philippians. By the blood of Jesus Christ, those who believed, they were washed as white as snow. They were justified in the sight of God, and they are now known not as rebel sinners, but rather saintly sons and daughters. God began a good work in the Philippians. He made them into holy ones. And brothers and sisters, he has begun a good work in you also. If you are in Christ, you may know that he has removed your heart of stone, and he has granted you a heart of flesh. 
He has made you who were dead in your trespasses and sin and has made you alive. He has begun a good work in this place. Just look at the evidence sitting in this room. I see seats filled with men, women, and children who are saved by the grace of God and living at peace with God through Jesus Christ's atoning work on the cross. And this work wasn't arbitrary either. It wasn't something that God in that specific temporal moment decided to be as though he had never thought of it before, but rather it was something determined even before the foundations of the earth. We likely all know the text in Romans 8, 28 to 30. You can turn there in your Bibles. It's Romans 8, 28 to 30. Romans 8, 28 to 30 says, and he who know, and we know that those, sorry, Romans 8, 28 to 30 says, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called, and those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Paul wrapped up so much meaning in these three verses, but I want to focus in on three main points. One, God works all things together for good for those called according to his purposes. God is not thwarted by the world, but rather he will call those he wills according to his own purpose and his own purpose alone. He will begin a work in whomever he pleases, unimpeded by the devices of man or Satan. Two, he foreknows and he predestines and he calls. He actively plays a role in the work that he began in you from the very beginning. In fact, before, you, before the beginning, he had already purposed you. From the very foundations, he purposed you. First, he foreknew, and you may recall Pastor Riley's teaching on this on several occasions, we're not talking about looking down the corridors of time and foreknowing those who would believe as though God had no prior knowledge of them and then predestining them according to that foreknowledge that God had to acquire of their existence. That's a ridiculous proposition, and it's an unbiblical one as well. Rather, what Pastor Riley often says, and Paul means to say, is that God foreknew them before he even created them. He knew them beforehand in the same kind of way that Adam came to know his wife in an intimate sense. So God also knew intimately those whom he created before he even put this creation into motion. Within this foreknowledge, God then predestines as he makes his knowledge and purpose destiny, or in other words, true fact that must and will take place. And this destiny then is applied into uh, temporal space and time as God then calls those whom he foreknew and predestined to repentance and faith in Christ. He who began a good work in you, he who called you, will not abandon you, but rather has planned out your redemption from before this vast universe was even created. So take heart, brothers and sisters, you are known, and if you turn to Jesus in faith, he will certainly sustain you as he sustains the universe around you. 
Three, he justifies and he glorifies. Those whom he foreknows, he predestines. And those whom he predestines, he calls. And those whom he calls, he justifies. Justification refers to a believer's right standing before God through the blood of Jesus Christ. In other words, those who God foreknew, predestined, called, are then blood-bought. Blood-bought by the one who intimately knows them. He does not leave these men, women, children that he has foreknowledge of to their own devices, but rather he gives them a way out. He that begins a good work continues it in their lives, of, in the lives of his saints. Which ultimately brings us to the final moment where God, who began a good work in us, will bring it to completion in our glorification. Paul's usage of the term glorification is in the context of the final transformation that the Christian will experience. When we are, are received into the gates of heaven and are given bodies that are pre pure and free of ailment and hearts that are free from sin and deceit, it is when we will receive all the benefits of peace with God and more so the benefits of being adopted sons and daughters. To be glorified, therefore, is to be given a dignity that we once did not have, to be transformed into something we once were not. When God calls us, when he begins a good work in us, he does not do so arbitrarily, but rather he does so with purpose. He will not call and then leave us to our devices, but rather he will give us the way out, the way of redemption. And ultimately, he will bring this work to completion. As Paul says, he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. Just a quick note on how God accomplishes and sustains his purpose in the saints. Ephesians 1, 13 through 14 says, In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. We who are predestined by the Father are then bought by the Son and are kept and sealed by the Holy Spirit. Our redemption is Trinitarian in nature, and we cannot forget the important work of the Spirit in all of this. Without the Helper, we could not discern these spiritual things. Therefore, the Spirit's work in our lives is an exhaustive act. It permeates every facet of our lives. The Spirit is at work at all times. Continuing on, brothers and sisters, do not forget the good plans that God has set out for you. He is an everlasting Father who does not forget his children. And if an evil man gives his children good things, how much more will our heavenly father do good to his daughters, sons and daughters and whom take refuge in him and that spirit that indwells them? If you are already a part of this church, then I encourage you, depend and deepen your regard for that church and recognize it as one of the dearest means of grace to you from God. Be a part of it even if you feel inadequate. We are all inadequate sinners who need the redemption of a savior and continue to need his mercy and forgiveness. 
day by day, we need this forgiveness. And if you are not part of this church, or you have not yet professed Christ as Lord and Savior, put on your mind today and consider your predicament. You do not know the day or time that God will require an account from you. You will sit before the judgment seat of God, and God will list your sins. And at the end, he will pronounce you guilty. And the host of heaven will respond in joy that justice has been done. Yet there is hope. The good news of the gospel is that Jesus Christ bore the penalty for the charges against his people. He suffered the consequences for their actions. He has taken their robes of unrighteousness and exchanged them for robes of righteousness, for his robes of righteousness. So that when his people stand before the judgment seat of God, all he will see is a son of obedience and righteousness. And he will declare that moment in a mighty voice, innocent. And this is my son, whom I am well pleased. This is your lot if you believe on Christ as your rock, if you will turn to him in repentance and faith. Paul goes on in verse 7 and 8, and I can't help in this discourse but to say along with Paul to you all here today in regards to these things. It is right for me to feel this way about you all, because I hold you in my heart, for you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. Paul here is re reflecting on verse 3 and 6. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. And Paul now says of these things, it is right for me to feel this way about you all. Paul is not simply a messenger for Jesus Christ who delivers a letter without passion or care, but clearly has a fatherly affection for his hearers who he seeks to teach in sound doctrine. The, doc the term doctrine means simply teaching. And Paul desires to teach his audience in the ways of Christ-like obedience. And I believe we can say with certainty that he does this teaching not primarily as an intellectual end. Paul doesn't say, I hold you in my mind. Rather, I believe that the change that Paul seeks is a heart issue. I hold you in my heart. Let these things permeate your minds and in so doing change your hearts to seek after Christ. Paul says such things as in Philippians 4.1, Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. Do you think perhaps this is what our own pastors also feel for this con congregation? Brothers and sisters whom they love and long for, a joy and a crown upon their head, I'd like to think so, and their passion for this congregation certainly seems to prove that to us. Paul also says in chapter 2, verse 17, Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrifi sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad, and I rejoice with you all. In other words, Paul is saying, Even if I am to be poured out on your behalf upon a fiery altar to be burnt up as an offering for you, I gladly do it, and I rejoice with you in it. Paul labors for the Philippians, 
He labors for the Galatians. He labors for the Romans. He labors for the Corinthians. And so also do Riley, Josh, and Brian labor for our congregation. Why? So that we can think rightly? Well, yeah. But ultimately, so that our hearts may be changed and inclined towards the Savior. Now, if we skip to the end of verse 8, we see more of this devotion from Paul. He says, For God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. In other words, Paul says that God knows his sincerity and conviction, and that he yearns for them with the affection of Christ. The term affection was understood by the Hebrews to be a, be a place where the more passionate emotions originated, such as love. Paul is referring to a deep passion, a passion for those he had ministered to, and he likens it to the affections and passions of Christ for his people. It was a consuming love. Christ loved us more than anyone could ever love us. Jesus took on flesh for us, lived a righteous life for us, died a brutal death for us, bore the wrath of God for us, rose from the grave for us, ascended to the right hand of the Father for us, intercedes on our behalf in heaven for us, sent his spirit as a helper on this earth for us, and sends us out with his gospel so that others can learn to love Jesus like us. Paul is commissioned to go forward with the gospel, and the gospel's implication is that we grow in affection for those whom Christ loved and died for. Ultimately, we are to be poured out like to drink offerings for the saints and those who are destined to be saints. We are to work out, work our way for their salvation. This ought to be our joy and crown, as Paul said in Galatians 4.1, and we must also affirm his conclusion here. Stand, ver stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved, Paul said in verse 7, It is right for me to feel this way, for you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. Paul says that I feel this affection for you because you have partaken in the grace of the gospel. Remember that grace comes from the Father through the Son, Jesus Christ's sacrifice, bringing peace between sinful men and a holy God. Brothers and sisters, when we hear of men, women, and children submitting to the good news of the kingdom of God, we ought to be impassioned with joy. There is absolutely nothing else as deeply meaningful as eternal souls turning to Christ and therefore spending eternity with him rather than the alternative of eternity as enemies of him and to whom he will have to put under his feet in hell. Salvation is the difference between eternal life and eternal death, and is the miracle of a changed heart. We often forget that we are experiencing a miracle when dead men rise to newness of life in Jesus Christ. Have you thought about that reality? They were spiritually dead, dead in their trespasses and sins, but now they are alive. Thank God that he is greater than our sins. And it is in view of this miraculous work that Paul rightly says, 
it is right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you all in my heart. And Paul feels this way even in his imprisonment. At the writing of this letter, Paul sits in a prison in Rome awaiting a trial before Caesar. And as I mentioned earlier, Paul had been accused by the Jews in Jerusalem of blaspheming God, was brought before Roman representatives where the Jews pushed for the Romans to execute Paul. When the Romans showed that they thought Paul had nothing, done nothing to deserve the accusation that the Jews were making, the, true, the Jews instead planned in secret to kill Paul. Acts 23.12 says, When it was day, the Jews made a plot and bound themselves by an oath neither to eat nor drink till they had killed Paul. Those who are implied to give approval to the act are named. They went to the chief priests and elders. The highest positions of authority in the Jewish leadership were all aware of a plot to murder Paul. And by the sound of this passage, we're not at all opposed to going along with that plot. And I mention this because I think that it connects with the next part of the verse where Paul says, you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. Why is Paul in this situation with the Jews in the first place? Because of his defense and confirmation of the gospel to the, to the Jews in Jerusalem and beyond. Why is he in prison now? And why did the Jews seek to kill him? Because Paul was a missionary and an evangelist to the Jewish people on behalf of Christ. And it is the lot of the ambassador of the king to go forward into enemy territory and proclaim the king's message. And to perhaps be scorned, imprisoned, or even killed for the name of the king. I hold you in my heart, Paul says, because you are partakers with me in this defense and confirmation of the gospel. Christian, live your life for the king and be unashamed of his gospel, and you may very well meet with persecutions of all kinds, whether scorn, imprisonment, or death, as did Paul and most of the disciples. Paul moves on to the end of the passage and bookends the section on thanksgiving and prayer with even more prayer. He says, And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment. Paul desires and prays for the Philippians' love to abound more and more. As God so loved the world that he gave his only son, so also are we to abound with love but we live in a culture that loves to say the word love. Just this summer, we had a parade go through our town whose main motto was love is love. There we have it, folks. We have an exhaustive definition of the word love for the dictionary. It reads love is love, or it could read love, the act of loving. Brothers and sisters, are you satisfied with that answer? Probably not and rightly so. Paul certainly wasn't satisfied with such a lack of definition either, which by the way is the case with the saying, love is love, because it literally tells you nothing. Don't be fooled. When someone says something like love is love, it's not there to help you understand. It's there to harm your understanding. It's not there to clarify. It's there to confuse. It's not there to find the truth of what love is. 
but rather to create their own truth of what love is to them, which is a love that is accepting and tolerant of all things, at least all things to which these individuals accept and are tolerant of. Don't be led astray by the simplitudes of sinners. They want a malleable definition so that they can form it into whatever lifestyles that they desire to live in that particular moment. But this is not the case with Paul, who says that it is his prayer that love may abound more and more. How? With knowledge and all discernment. Knowledge and all discernment are put forward by Paul to categorize what love ought to be, or characterize what love ought to be, that is filled with knowledge and discernment. Knowledge, or the act of knowing, undergirds absolutely everything. We cannot go forward in life if we do not know something. Or else we will go blindly, and perhaps to a cliff edge unknown to us. And to push my point that knowledge is a precursor for everything we do, just consider our understanding of God. The word theology is made up of two words, theos meaning God and logos meaning knowledge. We take a theology of God, that is, we have a God knowledge, and it undergirds our worldview. To bring it a bit more personal, I have a Josiology, that is, a Josie knowledge that undergirds my marriage. I know something about God as I know something about my wife, and it affects the way I go forward in my relationships. If I did not have a knowledge of my wife, I could not love my wife by Paul's definition because I would lack knowledge in my love, and it would no longer be a true love, but rather pure speculation. To bring us aside from knowledge for a few seconds, Paul also says that love is based in all discernment, or in all judgment. To love properly, Paul seems to say that I must judge that which I love based upon its merits. I must weigh what I see in that person against true knowledge. The word here for knowledge is epignosis, which implies above knowledge. Thayer's Greek lexicon describes it as precise and correct knowledge, used in the New Testament of the knowledge of things ethical and divine or absolute. We are not simply talking about a general knowledge. We are talking about a divine and absolute knowledge. And who is the epitome of divine and absolute other than Yahweh himself. Proverbs 1, 7 says it well. The fear of Yahweh is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. So knowledge begins with the fear of Yahweh. Where do you think discernment or right judgment then comes? It comes through knowledge and instruction of God. Psalm 1, 1 to 3 talks about a man who walks in the knowledge of God his creator. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinner, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither, and all that he does he prospers. Therefore, brothers and sisters, May your love abound more and more 
through divine knowledge of Christ, and may you discern with your right judgment that which is placed in front of you. Young men and women, let this also be a lesson for you. Do not chase after every young woman or young man that you meet, nor for that matter chase after every wind of doctrine that you hear. Rather, love both people and sound doctrine with a love based on knowledge and discernment. Do the work of threshing out the chaff before you grind up the flour. Honor God in your desires, and he will give you the desires of your heart. But threshing out chaff takes work, and you will need to learn before you can do, and do before you can teach others. Start by obeying God's commands today even if you struggle to understand them at the time. Young men, you are called to grow, to lead. God has given you a certain type of aggressiveness that desires to go out and slay dragons. He has given you certain desires to train up children and build up an army for godly warfare. This is what is natural to men, and you should never be ashamed of it while obeying the instructions of the Lord. Young women, you are called to be the crown on the man's head and the fabric of his household. You are the kingdom to which he sets his armies to defend day and night, because you are a precious jewel to him, worth much more than gold or other precious metals. He and his sons will take themselves on themselves many wounds to protect the kingdom in which you and your daughters dwell. You and your daughters shall bandage them and nourish them and send them back out to battle and give them something worthy to defend with their lives. Go and do as it is prescribed in the scriptures. Love with knowledge and discernment. I'm going to go more quickly through these last two verses because I believe I have largely made these points already. As verse 9 says, love that is based on knowledge and discernment will abound more and more. This leads Paul to say in verse 10 that this inevitably leads us to approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless in the day of Christ. Hebrews 13 verse 12 says, So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Jesus died so that we may be made holy before his eyes. First and foremost, as those saved by Christ's merits and not our own, Yet we are called to move forward with knowledge and all discernment and to approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless before Christ. We will be saved by Christ's works alone. But do not play the fool, brothers and sisters. We are still called to live good lives as a result of Christ's work in us. We are not antinomians or anti-law we ought to be the greatest law keepers because we are in Christ and his spirit is in us and our hearts have been changed, albeit in a process of sanctification to which we are all at different phases. If we have any doubt that we should be living righteous lives, all we need to do is look to verse 11. Be filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Be filled, brothers and sisters. Empty your cups of malice, sin, and rebellion against your Creator and Father, and fill your cups with the fruit of righteousness, living that is sorry, and fill your cups with the fruit of righteous living that is in accordance with the Scriptures. 
In so doing, you will bring glory and praise to God. And so Paul concludes his greeting, thanksgiving, and prayer for the Philippians. And what has he taught us? By example, he has taught us to be servants, not lording position and authority over others, but rather seeking to serve one another. He has taught us that we are all saints, holy ones, set aside by God's grace, and that our elders are the same, yet called to lead the flock in a special sense. He has taught us, in the, us the gospel, namely that it is by grace that we have been saved, and that this work of grace has created peace between the Creator and His creatures. He has taught us that we must prayerfully remember all the blessings God has given us and turn in thanksgiving to God, the one who has given us all things in Christ, including the hardships and the discomforts that we will experience. He has taught us that the one, he has taught us that one of these great comforts for our souls is the church and that we are to contend with our brothers and sisters on behalf of our Lord and Savior and that we have confidence that he who foreknew us and started a work in us will in due time bring that work to completion at the day of our Lord. And in so doing, he will glorify us. And finally, he teaches us that in the meantime, where we live between the temporal and eternal state, we are taught how to love with a proper love, steeped in knowledge and discernment, approving what is excellent, pure, and blameless, filling us with the fruit of righteousness. God cares how we move forward. And do not be fooled, he desires for us to keep moving forward. Brothers and sisters, we have only begun. We still have much to do. Let us continue then to remark with Paul to Timothy as we did in the start. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. The main effect that Paul states to Timothy is that the saint may be equipped for every good work, that is, every righteous work. The main... Sorry. And Jesus tells us in Matthew 9, 37 to 38, Then he said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into that harvest. We must go forward from this place with our minds set to be equipped for every good work. And then, brothers and sisters, man the plow. Go and do good and godly things for your Lord and your Savior. Take risks in your discourse with friends, family, and strangers. Give a reason for the hope that you have, and be not ashamed of it. For certainly Christ will not be ashamed of those that love him with all their strength to the end. Amen.